0: Exploring the world of ESG, 10 minutes at a time. I'm your host, Charlotte O'Mara, Senior ESG Specialist at Fedante. Welcome to ESG in 10. Last week, the Principles for Responsible Investment, or the PRI, held its annual global conference in Tokyo. And I was lucky enough to be able to attend alongside Moana Nottage from Alfinity Investment Management and Nana Lee from Impact's Asset Management. In the episode today, we will debrief on the key insights gained from the PRI conference and what actions investors can take to address many of the key themes explored. Moana is joining me in the podcast studio today, and I had the privilege of interviewing Nana Lee at the conference, and you will hear from her throughout the episode. Moana, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Charlotte. So, big week big conference. Uh, We've got a lot to cover, so we'll get straight into it. But I want to go right back to the beginning for the very first keynote address where we heard from the Prime Minister of Japan on the public and private sector efforts to achieve sustainable growth and support the transition. Now, I found a lot of his speech quite insightful, and he made a lot of um, big announcements in that speech as well to the Japanese people. Um, I thought it was really interesting what he said about the need for Japan to invest in the green transformation, and that will really change the structure and the fabric of their society, shifting away from fossil fuels towards green energy. And he noted that for Japan to achieve net zero, they need to invest 150 trillion yen into the sector. So a big focus of his speech was the investment in startup technology, not only in the renewable space, but also the circular economy. Um and I also found it incredibly interesting that he focused on impact investing and the need for impact investment to achieve that transformational change which is something that we don't really hear much from our leaders. What were some of your key takeaways from his uh, first keynote session? Yeah, I thought um Kishida opening with emphasizing the
1: government's support for net zero was really positive and Um, He introduced some policies such as a carbon pricing scheme and possible future import taxes for fossil fuels that will have implications for some of the Australian oil and gas players. Uh, He also pointed out, I think, the urgency in effective response and planning um, for natural disasters given the warming climate. And on top of that announcement that you mentioned in regards to the green bonds, He's committed the seven largest Japanese pension funds to um, become PRI signatories. And that really signals a new responsible investment era, I think, for Japan, um, which is was naturally well received by the PRI audience um, and echoes some of the points that you're making around the impact investment investment commitments. And I think this also connects with the third point that I wanted to raise was around the significant progress on standardized DSG reporting in Japan. So found out TCFD was actually mandated um, in December last year for listed companies and the government's also introducing sort of human capital and diversity metrics in required reporting, which is quite differentiated compared to some other markets.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the um, big surprises for me was how far advanced they are in terms of some of the disclosure and reporting requirements. And I think you're absolutely right. The announcement to get to have government support to get the seven largest investors onto the PRI is quite significant and signals the government's support for the transparency around reporting. Um, we also heard from Nana on the challenges and opportunities of investors in Asia, following on from... Uh, the keynote address. Um, so let's take a listen to Nana's perspective.
2: Thank you for having me first. And uh, I think there are still quite a lot of challenges remaining. Um, in Asia, for example, I don't think it's that well um, accepted for many people that we are now moving from the brown uh, assets to the green assets. I think there's a, certainly issue with affordability. Uh, a lot of people tend to think that green energy or green uh, renewable resources are mu- much more expensive than the, uh, the old ones, the uh, coal like uh, assets, uh, which is to some extent still true because we haven't reached the scale yet. But uh, if we uh, get everybody on board, then we can definitely reach a scale that we're hoping to uh, make it much cheaper uh, for everybody to be to, to afford uh, this level of resources. So I think there's uh, definitely still a lot of education to be done uh, in terms of raised awareness of people and also another thing is the capacity of the renewable energy that we have. So for example, I know Australian uh, markets uh, as being ahead of this uh, compared to some other Asian markets and uh, trying to uh, make a full, like I, I know quite a lot of friends uh, there, they have already installed the, the rooftop uh, panel uh, for their household, but it's not the case for many places in other markets and uh, it's not that practical also for some markets uh, for example, Hong Kong, where I'm based, it's it's impossible for everybody to install a panel on the rooftop because we have like hundreds of people in the same building. <laughs> you know, the, the density is, is crazy there, so it's difficult for you to to achieve that level. Uh, so capacity is another issue. Uh, although we have installed so many, and also like China is has been installing a lot of panels in different places, but still. In order to supply all the people, uh, I think, in, in the markets, I think we haven't got there yet. And it's, it's a question of how do we achieve that capacity and also come, come, back, come back to the previous uh, scale question. So if we can achieve that capacity, then all, everything will be much more affordable. But then the question is how? And I think every, every country is now really racing to, uh, to achieve all the levels, the limit they can. So but still, we have a lot of uh, challenges there on this. Thank you. So an interesting perspective from Nana
0: on capacity and scale in Asia in building the sustainable economy. Now, another key theme that dominated the conference was the importance of nature. And we heard from the chair of the IPCC about the urgency of the action required, including the need for investment in emerging technologies in things like avoided deforestation and reforestation. Now let's hear again firstly from Nana on the key opportunities for nature related investments in Asia.
2: Well as an investor I think there are so many opportunities uh, for us for example we are very focused on uh, investment in opportunities racing from the transition to a more sustainable economy so our whole point is trying to support any transition uh, that is helping with this so in terms of nature we are one of our major uh, engagement priorities is biodiversity, and we have done quite a lot of work on that. Um, not just for Asia, globally, we are one of the founding members of the NA100, and we are very focused on also trying to adopt uh, TNFD uh, and see how that goes with use of also many of our invested companies. I have to say in Asia, I had a meeting with a few, uh, quite a few key companies and the regulators around the region. I think uh, this is in feb this year, and I think it's not, aware I think, I think for some of the regulators that uh, uh, TNFD is coming on the way and uh, uh, because many of them are still focusing on TCFD and uh, for some of them they only just really um, fully adopted TCFD or got into the stage of uh, fully adoption, uh, t- talking about fully adoption. So TNFD is like another thing that they don't want to like care about I mean for some time I think. But I think uh, for this conference, I think we did hear a lot about uh, like this morning from the TNFD um, chair. Uh, and uh, I think definitely, I think the awareness has raised a lot in just the last couple of months. And the uh, impact is definitely uh, trying to do more on this area. And I think TNFD, uh, the NA Natural Action, Natural Action 100 also has a lot of companies that we want to lead uh, in terms of engaging with them on this aspect because we are a major investor or one of the investors. so. Yeah, I think definitely more work to be done. So we heard there from Nana on a few acronyms. So the Task Force
0: for Nature Related Financial Disclosure or the TNFD, who released their framework just a few weeks ago and Nature Action 100 Plus, which is a key collaborative engagement initiative across the world. So Mamana, based on some of Nana's commentary and what you heard at the conference, what are your thoughts on nature and such dominance across the investment markets um, and emerging dominance?
1: Yeah, nature was a really strong theme through the conference, wasn't it? Um, Absolutely. I think, I think it sparked from a broader uplift in sustainability awareness, mm-hmm. but partnered with this unique view that nature is crucial for climate action and productivity in our economy. So in, in terms of nature risk and nature opportunity, the release of the TNFD a couple of weeks ago, I think repositions sort of business strategy and disclosures into the opportunity space. and. A lot of the commentary that we were hearing through the conference was that nature risk is already embedded in um, balance sheet, company balance sheets and the TNFD will really support um, investors to be able to drill into what the metrics are and drill into what the kind of management priorities are um, as an investor. In terms of the, the opportunity side, I think that some of the metrics from the TNFD will really support supply chain resilience um, and the the interface between nature and climate is so important and with m- more extreme weather events and increasing severity of, of climate risks as well, understanding where the key impacts and dependencies is, is going to be really important, I think, going forward. And um, one of the examples, I think, that uh, was given in the conference was a company that was partnering, I think, with the universities to try and get that data collection going and try and understand at the plantation level, this is at a rubber plantation, um, what the key dependencies are and how that's changed over time. And I think that the interface between regulation is also feeding into this and managing risks like the EU deforestation policy um, that's come into place this year as well. All of these sort of different
0: facets are going to build into that risk and opportunity landscape. Absolutely, and I think touching on a few things that you said there, um, you know, data. Data has always been spoken about as the big barrier for investment managers in looking at nature risk. But I think what we learned at this conference is there's actually more data available than investment managers realise. And so they offered the tip of looking at what data you have access mm. to and how that can be applied to the TNFD framework, not giving up, but actually starting somewhere and doing that gap analysis. And as you said, um, nature is already embedded into the risks. And I think, uh, you know, the, the few companies we heard from that are already trialing the TNFD for certain aspects of their business. So I think, as you mentioned, the rubber plantation, for example, they're already applying the LEAP model. So the locate, evaluate, assess and prepare model from the TNFD framework to certain parts of their business, which I think for investment managers in Australia in particular, where we're not as familiar with this. It's really an opportunity for us to start applying this framework to certain parts of our operations and investments to get started on the process rather than waiting for the data to be perfect because that's just not going to happen.
1: Yeah, and I think there's also that um, thematic of sustainable agriculture that came through a fair bit as well because the the health of our ecosystems and food production is inherently reliant on nature. and the soil health, for example, you can have cover cropping, all of these different things in sustainable agriculture, I think is going to be a key focus for food retailers
0: as well as food production. Absolutely. And I think one thing that um, the chair of the TNFD said is that there are seven harvests between now and when the goals of the Kunmig Montreal Biodiversity Framework take effect. And so if you think about it that way, that's not long. And investors and companies across the market need to just get started. So we've spoken about nature, but also a key theme of the conference was the urgency of action with a key focus of the conference around what we need to do to galvanize the economy in the how, not just the what. Uh, Particularly given we have reached six of the nine planetary boundaries based on a 2023 study. As I mentioned earlier, we heard from the chair of the IPCC on the latest climate science. And I want to pick up on something he said on the urgency of action that I thought was really pertinent, that overshooting and coming back is actually worse, as there may be impacts that aren't reversible after they exceed certain levels. So this demonstrates why the urgency of action must be high on the agenda for both policymakers and investors. So starting with policymakers, let's hear from Nana on her thoughts on whether policy development globally, and particularly in Asia, is meeting the urgency of action required.
2: Yes, I think, so in my last role with the Asian Global Governance Association, I've done quite a lot of engagement with regulators and I carried on many of them uh, now I'm um, with the impact asset management. We have a policy advocacy team and I'm part of that team as well. So we have, since I joined last uh, July, uh, we have had quite a lot of engagement with all the major regulators around the region. I have to say, I think, even on a global scale, I think the urgency is very well um, aware. I think the question is how much can the regulators do with their own capacity and also resources. It has to be realized not just at the regulatory level. I think it has to be realized at the government level, and uh, that's why we see among the ESG uh, metrics we see a lot uh, development on the E side because the governments uh, in different companies, sorry, I think the government in different countries are mostly supporting the E uh, development. So. The regulatory definitely get the direction from the government as to what what, uh, policies and uh, what standards they should go first. And uh, the IWSB also has a lot to do with this uh, process. So I think it's all heading to the right direction. It's just a matter of the pace uh, for each market is different, depends on their own conditions and also the resources they have. So we've heard about policy from Nana, but
0: Moana, moving away from policy to the urgency of action required from investors. There were a number of insightful sessions on climate risk and particularly a session you attended on physical risk and adaptation. Can you take us through some of the insights you gained from that really interesting session?
1: Yeah, so echoing Nana's points, I think there's there's two important words that were um, sort of highlighted through a lot of the sessions and that was the just transition. And usually in the context of investment, we'll talk about just transition in terms of sort of worker outlook, especially in sunset industries. But just transition also does apply between nations as well. So we attended a fantastic session um, with the small island nation of Palau. And I think that the the challenge with the transition is that a lot of the high-emitting companies are developing still. And a lot of the developed markets have used fossil fuels to get to the point that they are now. And I think that really put the risk of uh physical climate events into perspective. So with global sea levels rising, with increased sort of storm surges, they would have impacts as a small island. And if they rely on tourism as well, um, their whole economy basically could be disrupted. It, one panel really hit the nail on the head in terms of company impact and the physical risk side. So it isn't just the physical bounds of a company site that we need to consider as investors. Now, at a portfolio view, you could sort of understand that these risks are going to be diversified, um, especially investing in global equities where there's multiple sites and multiple locations. But with more frequent and severe weather events, there actually might be a bottleneck um, in the event of a disaster in terms of construction workers, like availability of materials, access to company sites as well. Um, there was an example of a hotel that was... Um, hit pretty hard by a storm. And because of that, the local tourism industry was extremely impacted. So customer demand can change as well. So ultimately, as an investor, it's not just accounting for the risk of a rise in insurance premiums or access to the right insurance coverage, but it's other potential impacts that can influence the future earnings of business that are going to become more likely um, as the world continues
0: warming. That's incredibly interesting. And I think it takes a number of those themes that we look at in Australia, like you mentioned, just transition of just focusing on the worker voice, but bringing that globally and looking at the impacts on the developing first developed countries and the different transition pathways, that's the just transition as well. And I think that's something that we sometimes lose sight of here in Australia. So it's great to get that message from the PRI conference. So there's so much more we could cover. This is only a fraction of the engaging content that we were exposed to and the conversations that we had on the side, which I found incredibly valuable. But as David Atkin, the CEO of the PRI said in his closing remarks, we've heard diverse ideas and perspectives from our speakers. And hopefully those have sparked new ideas, connections and conversations for each of you. And I know for both of us, this conference has inspired us with new ideas to bring back to our own investment teams. Moana, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It was a privilege to spend the last week in Tokyo with you. Thank you for having me. And that is a wrap for this episode of ESG in 10. Thank you to Moana Nottage from Alfinity Investment Management and Nana Lee from Impact Asset Management. And a big thank you to the PRI as well for an engaging conference in Tokyo. If you like this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And all reports or publications mentioned in the episode today will be available in the show notes. The content today was produced by Melanie James with audio production by Jonathan Stilianu. I'm Charlotte O'Mara and this is ESG in 10 with Vedante.